This week I'm joined once again by John Cussens, who is the Senior Lecturer of Fine Art at the University of Worcester. In this episode we discuss consumerism, control, authority and freedom alongside the work of Deleuze and Guattari, Marx and Foucault. John's work can be found at johncussens.com. I'd like to thank all my patrons for making this podcast possible. And if you'd like to join the Hermetics community or support the podcast, please find our Patreon merchandise and donation links in the description below. Please enjoy. John Cousins, thanks very much for coming back onto Hermetics podcast. Yeah, good to be here. For this discussion on consumption and consumerism, which is a discussion I've wanted to have in depth for a long time because it's something that always comes up often in a cliche way, often in a fairly ignorant way. And when we were emailing this, you sort of fairly in-depth outlined about sort of six different routes, all continental. I also, I realised, you know, sort of reading it, this isn't something that analytics or rationalists, it's parasitic in nature and fairly abstract. I don't think it's something that really, of anything I've read, it hasn't um, got into that framework of, you know, maybe they just see it as data and statistics. I sort of begin just with a fairly open-ended uh, statement which is you know we often hear academics more people who are a bit more well read uh, the intelligentsia they say things along the lines or at least I think so of you know the empty-headed consumer you know they're just going around uh, consuming Marvel films and the latest brand but what, what you know what can we make of this statement is it a bit is it a bit of a non-statement really uh, yeah well I kind of I've done a lot of thinking about this, and um, <laughs> again, it, my my immediate question, as it was in the email correspondence we had, was that you know, and it's not like um, being pedantic, or there's a certain sort of pedantry in it, which is like who's saying that, and you know who who is who's you know where's that coming from, and you know you know throw it back to you, which is you know where are you hearing it, what kind of people, you know, it's more like a kind of. It's a kind of empiricism that is kind of necessary. Like, where are we hearing our stories from? Where are we getting this idea from? Where are we getting these ideas that other people think things in a certain way? Now, again, I understand where that comes from, but I think it's very important sort of to sort of be precise about these things. And, you know, in my universe, there are very specific examples of people kind of having that thought and thinking that, you know, consumerism is empty-headed. And I myself have had that opinion. And I think part of what I wrote to you in the email correspondence was where that thinking was coming from. It's quite a long history of critical thoughts, really, uh, critical theory, you know, but other things too. I don't, but I don't really experience the empty headed consumer idea that much in my sort of immediate social environment or my family environment. You know, I have it um, it's more than anybody else <laughs> I know. Um, so I could say where it's coming from for me, but it's not something I see so much in my immediate cultural environment, mm-hmm. um, either from my family and friends or from my social environment. So I'm going to throw it back to you. Where, where are you getting the idea that, that people treat consumerism as some kind of empty headed behavior? Probably from myself, to be honest. I think, no, I think <laughs> if I'm being completely honest and sincere, I, you know, I have to say that I think a lot of people, whether or not they want to admit it or not, do see themselves as selecting certain modes and objects of consumption is sort of greater than than um, 
that which is popular. I think this is the thing, is there is most definitely a popular culture that's sort of unavoidable. Mm-hmm. Uh, TikTok, whatever it is, Snapchat, Marvel films, I mean, that's a classic example. Mm-hmm. But but things which people are consuming by literally by the millions, you know, mm-hmm. these are the, this is where I think the seed of anyone who's sort of critically trying to evaluate their immediate culture and analyze what they're consuming the first thing they're going to sort of bash heads with is the the fact that millions and millions of people agree upon a set opinion and it's fairly objective which is that these mass productions of pretty much anything are good but really what i think we're going into is that more you know millions of people are buying into an idea which is where i think this conversation would eventually head is what actually is it that they're they're consuming that's the interesting question i think and there's plenty of strands but the first one you brought up is the the marxist fetishist notion which is that you know embedded um into the object is sort of a life or a a form of value or an or i would even go as far to say an identity and i think that's what the almost the criticism is is that people aren't thinking about what they're becoming via their consumption there's so many it's been really <laughs> exciting kind of like digging into this again because it's something that has been i've been thinking about for 20 or 30 years and so but it's hard to separate all the different sort of theoretical strands that converge in these around these questions mm-hmm. um and um you know the things like the, the concept of the masses or mass culture or mass manipulation or mass media. The concept of the masses needs to be understood as to how that concept is a sociological or a general social idea entered into our language and, and popular language. There's also the difficulty of the differentiating between popular notions and popular ideas of, the, of society and more complex theoretical um, uh, formulations of that. Which enter into the, you know the language of you know the list goes on Durkheim, Weber, Marx, you know, mm-hmm. it, you know all that kind of heavy social, well, just sociological theory. And I think I've always been interested in you know popular discourse, popular ideas, and and excavating those through theory and philosophy, but always kind of coming back to kind of the the everyday in a certain sense, like what what is it around us, and and trying to disentangle those sorts of ideas and. Um, one of the things that's always sort of been with me and I've been trying to disentangle for a long time is this this idea of materialism uh, and the two very distinct and in no way kind of um, individually coherent sets of ideas around what we mean by materialism. And, and I grew up with this idea that a materialist was somebody who, a person who really was preoccupied with consumer goods material things Mm -hmm, that's the same that's the same one i grew up with yeah yeah, and their sense of well-being and identity was predicated on how much they could own or their conspicuous consumption so materialism and i think the roots again and I, i i keep having to speak back to throw myself back to my imagination as a child and then a a young adult and my thinking then and what i've learned in the 30 years since then and it's quite often difficult to disentangle, but I keep trying to push myself back. And that it's very, it seems very evident that, that that notion of materialism as a bad thing in terms of acquisitive accumulation of wealth and, and, and status through what one owns 
has a kind of religious, there's a religious root to, I think, the criticism of that, that kind of materialism. You know, the, you know, the, the, you know, the, the camel through the needle's eye, etc. This, these kinds of ideas of an ascetic Buddhist giving up of material things. That somehow there's a there's a there's a truer spiritual path in the relinquishing of material possessions. Mm -hmm. And I have that very deeply. You know, it's a kind of deep Buddhist Protestant kind of thing that that I grew up in and that was in the culture. So on the one hand, there was always this sort of this kind of spiritual religious relationship to the criticism of materialism and the possession of material goods. And then as I kind of got educated and went to university and, and later, you know, encountered the works of, of Marx and others, particularly Marx, there was this new version of materialism, which was anti-theological. Uh, mm -hmm. which was this philosophical position where I now can say it goes back to something like in an oversimplified way, Cartesianism or, you know, some, again, stereotyped and not particularly uh, um, accurate, but very powerful idea of the mind-body split and dualism, etc. So then there was this philosophical problem or this philosophical set of ideas which said that, that not believing in materialism as in the, 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 the world everything everything is is governed by physical laws mm -hmm. uh was a form of delusion you know mm -hmm. i'm thinking about marx you know religion is the opening of the mass masses any belief mm -hmm. in higher spiritual values actually serves the interests of the capitalist class who deliberately manipulate um us into believing in higher spiritual values so the the naive teenager version of that is Okay, well, you know, Christianity simply serves the purposes of the bourgeois, the bourgeoisie, by convincing us that we will have um, a better life in a, another world, uh, i.e., heaven, when we die, if we if we comply with their laws. Mm -hmm. uh, and in fact, what we should be doing is overthrowing their laws and living imminently, imminently in the here and now, according to you know universal human needs. Mm -hmm. uh, and so you get these two different types of materialism, both converging around the questions of political economy, mm -hmm. uh, possessive individualism, you know, Macpherson's theory of possessive individualism, all these ideas, which, again, I've been struggling with and trying to untangle, you know, since I was a teenager, to, and I think it's, it's not something that we're going to suddenly resolve anytime soon. Um, but, but I think those two arguments about materialism, those types of thinking about materialism, help frame something of the discussion around why we might see people who consume a lot of goods as being somehow mindless um has goes back to the hegelian marxist notions of fetishism and that somehow they're being manipulated or controlled by a dominant ideology whose interest it is to keep them consuming uh, to keep the dominant socio-economic order in place and when you look at the history of consumerism or the, the history of consumer society, let's say, which is slightly different, the construction of consumer society, it's very clear that there have been ideological strategies put in place by capitalism to ensure that people keep consuming during periods of economic crisis, which is why I think this moment in the, the coronavirus pandemic um, lockdown situation is a very pertinent time mm -hmm. to be thinking about what about this question of consumerism and what consumer consumerism was about and what consumerism is going to be about because i think we're inevitably going to encounter similar questions that emerged in the the last major economic collapse in the west you know, the great depression which is when precisely when 
uh, our notions of the consumer society first started to emerge. So it's between, you know, the 1920s, uh, then again in the 50s, it picked up again, and then in the 80s. But there's been, you know, during the last centuries when uh, the notion of a consumer society really consolidated itself. And I think the two types of materialism intersect with that debate, but in different ways. Yeah, there's a, couple, there's a couple of questions there because you, you related it to, you know, the current event, the, the, the coronavirus pandemic. But, you know, if you remove the virus, which seems to be settling, what we've had is a sort of forced solitude, which isn't something that the majority of people, it seems, are too keen on. There's a fairly, as far as I can see, a fairly forced extroversion. You know, introversion isn't particularly something capitalist society likes because introverts generally don't go out and spend as much. You know, um, But with regards to that, you know, you're saying that this is an interesting and sort of pertinent moment in time. And I think that's because it's the, the, the veil of the the veil that everyone sort of knows. You know, you watch an advert, you know. We are aware enough now to understand that an advert is trying to sell us something. You know, the the uh, illusion of it is completely gone, but we, we sort of abide by it anyway. But this lockdown has sort of changed it because we can't go out and we can't um, interact with things in the same way. You know, you, you, you if you watched a car advert before, you'd think, well, yeah, I could buy that car and I could go drive it. Whereas now you can't. So there's sort of this strange moment where if you, I don't get to watch much normal TV, but if you watch a, an advert for a car now, it sort of says uh, something along the lines of, you know, we hope you're all doing okay. We know it's a tough time. Buy a car. And it's so empty and sort of, well, you haven't got anything to stand on now. But we, we it's sort of the uh, the essence of it all is sort of cracking. And they there's, it seems to me there's a sort of panic on that side of things in terms of how do we still bolster this form of consumerism when there is, when a lot of the structure which consumption is based on has just been... A, been completely taken away for a matter of you know a brief amount of time and it's sort of an economic panic but uh, there's a there's a, another thing that you brought up there which is sort of the larger question at hand which is to do with the buddhist thing which is you know the the buddhist notion of giving away your material and of course there's an argument there that in the west people still are buying into the notion you know they're consuming the notion of buddhist asceticism or they are still consuming an idea with regards to um, material giving away material is still potentially a material idea and that's that's a paradox to do with sort of authenticity which is the the tricky one you see so, so you, you're so on the money here but it's like very you know <laughs> all these things need a, an awful lot of unpacking but let's just stay with the first one like i think as i mentioned i have, I have a particular aversion to cars um uh, and it's deeply irrational uh, there was an, an old, a guy in my hometown of york or mad albert who used to walk around town shouting at cars and shouting move it can you move and he'd stand and he'd stop cars and it was fantastic to watch as a teenager just like he and i started to develop a similar psychopathological aversion to, to cars and um, it's kind of quite deep, and I just want to say this is just because I think it's kind of quite funny. For me, and especially during the lockdown, there's less cars, but I always hated cars. I've been, you know, like developing a real hatred for them. I see cars as like, you know, that film They Live, John Carpenter, mm-hmm. where, you know, suddenly the, the, you know, you can see that all the signs are saying obey. Well, for me, the aliens are the cars. Uh, and the people who sit in them and drive them around think they're driving 
them, but actually the cars are driving the people. Mm -hmm. It's my mm -hmm. vision that the cars are like alien monsters or something that have taken over the human species, like a parasitic extra ex exoskeleton. And the question of individual freedom is so closely tied to the notion mm -hmm. of the automobile. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's ridiculous around here, moving to the countryside, like everybody just like, oh, I can't, you know, I need a car because I've got, there's no public, mm -hmm. public transport, which of course, having lived in the city for 30 years in a metropolis where there was a lot of public transport, and you took the tube or you rode a bicycle, that's why I never needed to buy a car. But anyway, forget the, the biographical stuff. The point I'm trying to make is that for me, there is no way that the kind of whole structure of Western capitalist society will ever stop using fossil fuels until people stop driving cars. And the likelihood of people stopping driving cars is so slight that I really can't see it ever, ever happening. And so automobiles are crucial, not only because it was the car industry in the 1920s, particularly the difference between Ford and General Motors in America, that introduced the concept of inbuilt obsolescence. And inbuilt obsolescence is a kind of crucial idea for how consumer society operates. You know, the products are designed not to last, to be subject to patterns of fashion and desire so that, you know, you only want the thing for a year because it's no longer the current model, etc. All that reasoning of, of pro product production and, and consumerism was constructed in the 1920s to begin with, with General Motors. And it's just, we'll come back to General Motors because they're hugely important. They decided that they would make models yearly so to, to keep consumerism going. Whereas Ford in the 1920s, Ford wanted to make cars that would last you a lifetime. And it's this difference between having a product and an object which is which will stand you in good stead for a long period of time that you don't need to keep repurchasing or repairing. And this and the Ford Fordist model lost. The General Motors model won. Now, this was just before the Great Depression. Now, this idea that making lots of models and keeping the consumers buying them would be a way to, to solve the problem of overproduction and a surplus. Because this idea that, you know, if production exceeded demand, you'd have a depression. You know, an economic crisis, which is, of course, what happened. And it was after the, the, the Great Depression that the, this concept of uh, inbuilt obsolescence started to be theorized. And I've, I've got some great material I can send you about how it was in a way to avoid this paradoxical situation where you had more than enough stuff for people, but the people didn't have the money to buy the stuff. Mm -hmm. And that's the problem. They're out of work. They don't have an income, but there's a surplus of stuff. We still have a surplus. That hasn't changed. There's more than enough stuff to satisfy our needs. It's just suddenly now not um, available to us because the supply chains are being affected and because of people, because of the coronavirus, et cetera. So I'm not saying it's going to radically change anything, but I do think what it's exposing is the ways in which the supp supply chains are set up, the distribution of, of um, commodities and necessities and the difference between the necessity and luxury goods, et cetera, et cetera. It's certainly exposing something about that system. Now, just to go back to this automobile question and the, the idea of the freedom of the individual and the freedom of movement, there is, and this is the Frankfurt schools, one of the Frankfurt schools, kind of most sim simple and strongest ideas was that in consumer society, as it was constructed in the post-war America, the question of civil liberties or human fr freedom in a kind of a liberal democratic sense was being supplanted by the concept of consumer freedom. Mm -hmm. So freedom of choice, 
and freedom of consumer choice came to be how you expressed your freedom. So if you had more choice of automobiles to buy, you were freer than if you had only one choice of automobiles mm -hmm. to buy. Right? So and this was, of course, the great idea, one of the great ideological kind of struck. How do you put this? One of the ideas that was seen to differentiate communism from capitalism. You know, mm -hmm. in a communist society, you would have one automobile, you know, and of course, VW advertised itself precisely in this way for a long time, that you had to buy one VW and it would last you a lifetime. Mm -hmm. It was, you know, VW advertised itself against this inbuilt obsolescence question. But to come full circle on this and, and to mention a film which I highly recommend, which I don't know if you've seen yet, called Planet of the Humans. It's just been released and it was released on Earth Day, which was a couple of days ago. It's brutal and brilliant. And it exposes something which... Um, I think is is, well, is absolutely implicit is that the one of the main drivers behind the shift to so-called green energy mm -hmm. uh, which isn't really green energy as this documentary reveals it's actually simply biomass which is basically requires deforestation so it's a, a complete antithesis of what the green agenda of the environmentalists from the 1960s to the present have been talking about is basically being instituted in America. So, and it's been overseen by the fossil fuel industries and General Motors. So to bring this whole thing back to around questions of that, that there is a, a, a kind of a larger system uh, and and to, to sort of fulfill in many ways what Adorno and Horkheimer said that the culture industry is, is enlightenment as mass deception. If you watch the planet of the uh, planet of the humans, you'll see that it's quite glaring that the whole idea around electric cars, and we'll, I just want to say a little bit about, we'll finish off when I'll talk about electric cars. That, those are the cars that are being advertised on television now. I don't normally watch television, but because of the lockdown, I'm watching it, Channel 4, right? After the news, I think, okay, you know, I'll, I'll watch Celebrity SAS or something. And I'm, I'm actually quite enjoying some of the TV. <laughs> um, and, you know, anyway, I won't say what else I enjoy because it will be too you know, psychological. Um, but... Electric cars are being advertised. Now, electric cars are ridiculous. They're being promoted by people like Elon Musk and, you know, the, the automobile General Motors and, you know, BMW. It's a complete deception. Mm -hmm. There's no way mm -hmm. that those cars are going to work. I had an incident with a friend who bought an electric car a few weeks ago. It was a complete disaster. If you drive down any motorway, in, and which I rarely do, but occasionally I have to because I have to get a taxi to work when the trains break down. If just look at any motorway and think, how is that going to be fueled by um, not non-fossil fuel energy? Where's the electricity going to come from? Where does mm -hmm. all the electricity those electric cars are going to be using is coming from fossil fuels? Yeah, right? yeah. It's a complete delusion. Mm -hmm. But those advertisers, those car industries, are so powerful. I guess an ideological deception that they can convince people, intelligent people, that the right thing to do is to buy an electric car which is completely the wrong thing to do if you were trying to um, save, um, prevent the consumption of fossil fuels. Yeah. So I just see that and I kind of go, you know, go ballistic. It's like, yeah. what, you know, and they, <laughs> they're plugging that in and people are believing it. Mm -hmm. So what is that? Well, to bring it, there's three things which come to mind there. The, the first one, which is sort of humorous, which, John Zerzan brings up, which is the Earth Day and sort of all the the companies which are uh, heavy, sort of love the Earth, Mother Nature, blah, blah, blah. They all usually use some form of uh, photographic advertising, which is a picture of the Earth. And Zerzan's point is, what did we have to do to get to the point where we could take a 
photograph of the earth. We had to have the entirety of industrial society. So all their, you know, we had to go to space, etc. So that all that sort of, it's just immediately sort of just signaling to say, look, look how nice we are. Whereas as far as I can see, the real sort of earth and pro-environment movements, which I think, you know what, you're sincere, you're effective, are local and you'll meet them locally and they're doing, you know, they're planting hedgerows or something. It seems silly, but that's, that is, they're people who aren't expanding into a system which is, the system which is inherently destroying the earth. But to bring it back to cars, and I sort of slowly am understanding this hatred, which is one of the things Dmitry Orlov brings up with regarding the freedom of cars. You know, it's inherently tied in history to the American notion of sort of liberty and freedom. It was all the early adverts were go where you want to go. You know, people usually parked outside new suburban housing lots with big open highways. Whereas when you actually think about the freedom of the cars, um, sure, you have a, a very strange form of constrained freedom. You're free to crash the car. You're free to pay all the bills. You're free to sit inside a car which is pumping carbon monoxide into it. If you put a carbon monoxide alarm in your car, you, you, it will go off. You know these these aren't safe things. And you're also you're only free to travel on uh, through let's call it circuitry, which is mm-hmm. pre-made. You know there, there isn't you can't there isn't some open car field. You know, and if there was, that's already confined. You know, there is, there's no, there's no real freedom there at all. Uh, th- okay. No, the third thing was um, Ford, and Ford also introduced the specialization. Ford was the, you know, that was the company which was mm. the first one to say. I think originally you had people who could build every bit of the car and they lost them all and they said, no, no, come back, we'll pay you double, but you only make doors. And they were the first company, you know, they're practically the reason we have, you know, people whose jobs it is to put a cherry on a cherry bakewell. That's their entire day is to do that. And that Yeah, the assembly line model. Yeah, that's Ford. Um, yeah, no, that's right. And that's, and you know, and of course, you know, gave a name to, you know, a certain late capitalist form of, of production from a leftist perspective, you know, Fordism. Uh, you know, Taylor's time motion studies is a very important for sort of cybernetic automation of production, you know, like having the workers, every micro movement analyzed, you know, and I think we're getting into something here, which I think is more abstract, uh, but it has it has something to do with this question of analytic philosophy and data, which you brought up at the very beginning, which we'll get back to, which is the kind of cybernetization of, uh, of production and of, uh, of the human realm, which, you know, we can talk about it's a big issue, but we'll talk about perhaps later. So yeah, those those time motion studies, the automated workforce, uh, the idea, and of course Norbert Wiener, the human use of human beings, cybernetics very much grows out of a kind of how do you rationally calculate uh, the maximum minimum uses of expenditure on a on a production line so that the worker becomes integrated into the production line. It's the very robotic, well, literally, <laughs> it is robotic in that sense of the human being a machine subcomponent component of a larger machine and perhaps we can also get around to questions of desire and production later on around that because i think that's where it actually comes from mm-hmm. um but to, so i think all these things are crucial i think you, you mentioned something else too which is you know very contemporary term um which is virtue signaling which is you know that term has really come up um through the internet through the mm-hmm. social media that's where that term i mean it has a longer history um, and it's very, you know, we could we can talk about the history of, of virtue signaling, but it, it's emerged in a certain kind of milieu and context. But I think there is a relationship that you could draw maybe psychologically between uh, 
conspicuous consumption and and status signaling mm-hmm. through your through consumption like i i buy this kind of product so are you still you know there's this i've heard this idea of like you know like um like eco shaming where mm-hmm. people go around to your house and say oh you're still using non-biodegradable bags for your litter or something you know like there is a sense in which ecologism and consumerism are very much linked to a kind of virtual signaling kind of milieu in a sense that you can say something about how righteous you are by how much you recycle or you know how much green food you buy there's a clearly a sense to which um green consumerism fulfills a kind of pattern of conspicuous um status um conferring um and of course you know that's not great um but it's also interesting so i think there's a there's a correlation there between you know making a gesture of of you know, wearing an Extinction Rebellion badge, for instance, and it, it happens, or or even another example of this, which goes into more sort of interest in social psychology realms around virtual signaling, is the clapping for the NHS, for instance, on a Thursday evening. You know, and we were joking, I was joking with my partner last night that, you know, perhaps all the neighbours are out there and they know we're the only ones that aren't. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, we're kind of, we don't even know it, but we're becoming the pariahs of the community. Because <laughs> we're, not, we're not seen to be out there clapping the NHS. And I think this is another dimension, but the social psychology aspects of, of, of virtue signaling are, are crucial. But to come back to your other point, and we're, we're perhaps talking around many different areas here, but I think it's important, was this this idea that you can consume mindfulness, or to, to paraphrase what you were saying, that, that you can signify your piousness, or somehow signifying piousness but I really don't see a lot of signifying piousness. I mean, really, you can't, you know, if you're an aesthetic and you're at home meditating or you're just not consuming or you're just not, you're not signifying, are you? You have to, sig- you have to be in a social milieu to signify. Mm-hmm. So it's a sort of semiotic that you have to be engaging with. You have to be telling people, well, I don't consume, you know, whatever, battery chicken because, you know, you know how, if you go to the supermarket and go, look, I only have corn-fed organic free-range chicken and make a point of showing your neighbours, you know, <laughs> then it becomes a signifying status symbol. But if you just consume, um, you know, free-range or locally sourced chickens because you just sort of think it's probably better all around for the economy for chickens or, you know, whatever, it, you know, whatever your personal decision is about you know, the ethics of consumption, it doesn't necessarily um, turn into a social semiotic. Well, I think really what we're talking about there is trying not too hard to name drop every sort of continental philosopher. We're talking about Foucault's notion of normalcy because I'm, you know, everything we've been talking about, I'm reminded of that classic um, clip of uh, George Bush. I think it was shortly after 9-11 once it all settled and he said something along the lines of, uh, I just want everyone to be sh- to go shopping and everything to go back to normal. And he basically sort of equated normality with going out and shopping. And with this sort of normalcy we have, there are, in at least, you know, I always have to say in the spheres that I walk, and I, you know, I don't go out all that much, but when I, when I used to go out a fair amount, there was a lot of um, there was a sort of set of things which were considered normal for people my age, but even it was getting older. So from sort of 20 to 40, it was sort of expected that you go out, you drink. Um, if you're single, you have casual sex. There was lots of very sort of specific things. And when you when you didn't do them, 
that was you know that was immediately seen as a choice as opposed to something you just did because the you know you were the norm had been set unconsciously and through um I, I guess through just collective people doing it and it being pushed in certain ways but the norm had been set and anything against that such as asceticism such as not drinking or not smoking these are no longer things that you can just do and not have to say but if you go out and say well i don't drink unless there's an active reason and this is coming from you know i don't drink this is coming from personal experience unless there's an active reason as to why it isn't normal you know and and this is the this is the difficulty because i think that much like the overton window you could sort of call, call it the the normalcy window is getting tighter and tighter and anyone who's further out from it you know the examples i sort of give as well you know they all immediately seem strange to people but let's take what would seem as a silly one which is imagine if someone just wanted to skip to the shop instead of walk that's weird but why you know that these are the questions that i think i'm trying to trying to help people understand is that you can do these things and everyone is so constrained mentally but it's like we are or even you know you can sprint to the shop you can crawl to the shop they're they're deemed as strange but why and it's only because there's been this you know form of normalcy built up uh you know what what's what's called power knowledge by Foucault you know uh-huh. okay I don't want to go into too deep a philosophical and <laughs> academic question uh, sort of lining thing here so I'm going to try and avoid that but I don't think that is what Foucault means by power knowledge, but we could have another debate about okay. that. I think, but I understand what you're what you're intimating here. I think power knowledge is something else. I think uh, uh, normalization or social convention and custom is something that is very evident in any social organization. And I think, and I, we can maybe perhaps tease that out at, at another point. But back in the fifties, there was a kind of general theory of subcultures emerge, and I used to teach subcultures in sociology of subcultures for a while so i'm very familiar with this and i think it's still um a strong case that within social organizations social 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 societies and um, there are the pressure towards conformity uh are much stronger than the pressures towards non than the impulses to non-conformity mm-hmm. conformity is the norm Confor- you know it's, it's it's the same thing like the norm is what the the, the set of codes and conventions and customs by which the majority of people in a society conform to mm-hmm. right that's the norm and um, that's okay and uh, if people choose to, it it's what the dynamic that you're sort of talking about is why is it that if you choose to not something happens if you just don't conform mm-hmm. uh, the question is whether or not that's a choice and the assumption is that you've deliberately chosen to not conform whereas it may be that you can't conform or you have no interest in conforming you just don't get it i mean you know there's all sorts of reasons why an individual might but you've drawn conform. something out there that the, the one of the points that i'm trying to make there you that you've uh, made clear is you can't be neutral you know there's always got to be uh, it has to be a reaction as opposed to it might just be an inaction you know so you have the norm and everything is if you don't conform to the norm it can't be you it can't be a neutral thing that you just haven't even thought of it you know it there's always you have yeah, to be that... on the, 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 the you have to defend yourself oh no absolutely and i think the the, the you know the simple popular colloquial term for it is being a weirdo <laughs> uh, and you know i you know i grew up with this and it, it's, it was in the culture in the 1960s and 70s i'm sure it's in british culture still i'm sure all over the country people are saying oh look at that person over there you know whoever whatever gender sex they are whatever i was gonna say 
girl or why they walking around like staring at the sky mm-hmm. you know what a weird you know this mm-hmm. this aversion popular generalized aversion to the different mm-hmm. is very very strong i don't know if it's stronger in british culture than other cultures because this is the one that i know but it's really strong that the group thing identifies the non grouper and and bullies them singles them out you mean it's 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 difficult to you know you are persecuted if you're the person who for whatever reason doesn't want to conform it's amongst children it's very strong you know and that is a sort of a social dynamic which is very deeply rooted Uh, again i don't think it's to do with power knowledge i think it's something deeper in in the way in which human groups the dynamics of human groups. How do you understand power knowledge then? Well, power knowledge is much more to do with uh, institutionalized discourses and and uh, how they operate to decide what is is permissible to speak about. I mean, Foucault's theory of power knowledge is really about discourse. It has to be linked to his question of discourses and and the creation of the disciplines. And of course, within I don't like I said, tried not to get into mm-hmm. this, but of course, in you know, there's 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 the epistemic questions that are that are put forward in um, the order of things, mm-hmm. uh, where you know he talks about epistemic shifts, uh, and you know he's trying to trace this. Uh, uh, genealogy of epistemic shifts in 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 what we understand to be true and how that is related to institutions of power so power knowledge is embedded in institutions and the way they divide things and separate things and talk about things discursively it's about what is included in the discourse and what's not included in the discourse so discourses are parameters of inclusivity so for me my understanding of Foucault's notion of power knowledge was it has to do with the construction of discourses and statements in the archive and etc etc but he does obviously you know I mean one of his teachers was Georges Conguien and Conguien famously you know talks about the normal and the pathological so what Foucault picked up from Conguien is this question that he called dividing practices now this is where I think we can this is I guess if I can make a succinct statement about why I don't want to go into too deeply into mm-hmm. the kind of philosophical theoretical reflections about what Foucault may or may not have been saying. I think the concept of dividing practices that we differentiate between the included, the excluded, what can be talked about, what can't be talked about, is a very interesting conceptual mechanism. And of course, it, it operates on very different levels of, um, of social reality, reality. Uh, it, it's obviously very important in the discourse of, of um, social social systems, uh, but also in questions about knowledge and epistemology. And it also was used very specifically in terms of the dividing practices between the sane and the insane. So it had a lot to do with this, um, this, defer- this these differentiations on a conceptual level between this and that, the included, et cetera, et cetera. I think its, it's versatility is obviously um, very uh, pronounced. It can operate because it can operate at lots of different levels. So I, when the children of a group in a playground, for instance, um, pick on the child who doesn't want to play the game or isn't involved or is staring out into space, one could say that there, there, there is some dividing practice going on and that maybe it is some reflection of a higher level um, power knowledge system going on in the school. But I think it's, um, it's, it's more primal than that mm-hmm. on that level. And it isn't necessarily useful to think of it in those terms, although I understand 
how you would. Like the school doesn't tell the children to bully the child. The school actually tries to set up systems to stop bullying, but it mm -hmm. doesn't work. There's something in, in groupthink and the way in which it's, it's easier to disappear in a group, often led by certain powerful, stronger individuals, the bullies. Mm -hmm. You know, if you don't want to be bullied, you join the bully gang mm -hmm. and hide at the back of the bully gang. And if you, because if you fall foul of the bully gang, you will be bullied, singled out, victimized. That's happened to, all through my school life. That was going on. It never really, it's just, you know, and of course, if the teachers knew, they would go and say, stop bullying people. But it was, you know, it's a Lord of the Flies type situation in the playground, you know. Mm -hmm. So um, I kind of, there's a few things to say, just to, just to carry on, just to say a little bit about this, about the, the, the general theory of subcultures that was laid out is that, Pressures towards conformity are very, very strong, and it's it's dangerous to be a non-conformist. However, subcultures emerge from this theoretical perspective when groups of non-conformists find alliance. You mm -hmm. find alliance with other non-conformists, other people who've been marginalised, other people who've been bullied, other people who don't quite get it. And but you know, a subculture will emerge when those people who don't fit with the norm and convention and the social, the dominant customs find each other mm -hmm. and the argument is that they usually find each other because of this theory by what's got that you've got sticking your neck out mm -hmm. you stick your neck out you take the risk you speak up you say you know what fuck you lot i don't care if you're gonna you know whatever or or you know yeah i'm gay what are you gonna mm -hmm. do about it yeah I like men mm -hmm. so you know like and then the other people go oh you know what and this is how it works you know i like men too <laughs> I, don't, don't, I, don't, I don't normally talk about it. You like men? I know, I know. There's, there's other people who like men <laughs> over here. You know, we can go and hang out with them. And, you know, we don't need to, like, unless you, you know, so it's those dynamics, I think, are kind of more are kind of what's going on. Mm -hmm. um, and I think, and just finally to say around this question of consumption and alcohol, very specifically, I'm thinking, because I'm thinking a lot about youth subculture and about pop music and, and punk and, you know, the whole idea of hedonism and freedom in, in, in pop music and rock music in, in, from the 60s onwards, really, or 50s onwards. And I'm thinking about straight edge in, in punk, you know, and, you know, I, 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 I once knew a guy who was in a punk band called Antipasti, a British punk band, mm -hmm. and they'd gone over to the West Coast to, to sort of like the Black Flag West Coast SST scene. And he was shocked because all the British punks were like completely brew crew, piss heads, like, part of the punk thing was really to get drunk mm -hmm. and also to use amphetamines. Like there was a lot of intoxication in the British punk scene, but the straight edge scene in California and it's at Washington DC, but then it was in California. It was, it, there was a complete rift there. Like, why are you drinking? Why are you smoking? Why are you taking drugs? Do you not know that this is how the capitalist control machine runs you? You know, if, as long as you're drinking and smoking and taking drugs, you are fueling the military industrial complex war machine, mm -hmm. you know, and that is a, you know, I don't know how much more I want to say about that, but there was a, if you really wanted to be radical politically and engaged in real terms in the West coast in the eighties with the hardcore scene, you had to not drink, not smoke straight edge. I mean, what's your take on straight edge? Were you straight edge? Is this where? I think, well, this is the thing. If someone, if someone said to me, some form of label that you know not to be that too cliche but 
I, I generally just don't like applying labels to myself just for the same reason. I just think mm. it's silly. But if, if the, you know, by all definitions, I do, I am pretty much straight edge. I have one cup of coffee a day and I have done for four years. That's it. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I am. I, I, the, the thing for me with for straight edge, I mean, the, the, the classic songs about it by minor threat, um, and early black, the early black flag stuff when Henry Rollins, you know, was still the, the front man is about thinking. And it's about saying, well, if you're, you know, the, the, the song six pack is all about the fact that all these people want to do is, is have a six pack of beer and watch TV. And then I think it ends by saying, you know, I don't even have to think. And that's the point was that, well, if the punk movement is meant to be this nonconformist um, reaction to, to, the, the state and the government etc well then you're going to need you're going to need to think instead of just um getting drunk and passing out um so yeah that's that's sort of my my take on that one <laughs> but i but the the irony there is that and this is something i mentioned to gary lackman who i interviewed um two days ago which was we were talking about the fact that the you know stra- the irony of straight edge is that you you you're 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 not doing the thing that is assumed to be the the radical thing. So, you know, smoking weed, getting high, getting plastered is the assumed, like, oh, these guys are really cool, they're really against everything. But Straight Edge is making this case of, like, well, no, actually, it's not. And this is happening now in politics, in, in left and right politics, where you had this whole movement fairly recently and still ongoing, where it's now the, the radical thing to say, you know what, I want a family, I want a nine-to-five, I want this sort of... St- what would be considered conservative sober living you know it's mm-hmm. it's it's hip to be part of the you know part of that that sort of um i guess you call it classical conservatism sort of william buckley conservatism of a very sober seemingly sober vision that is now the alternative path because every the, the other path is just um it's been allowed free reign yeah i don't you know again we, it's I, I'm intrigued as to why you are so interested in these trends, and because first, just firstly, there may be some people in some spheres of society that are adopting conservative, you know, models of conservative uh, aspiration that um, that seem contrary to expectations according to and he goes on x y and z why would that be a why would that be contrary to expectations there'd be always been people doing that mm-hmm. i mean the middle classes in my from my you know kind of angry class war perspective <laughs> you know the middle classes have done that forever uh, mm-hmm. and they continue to do it they just you know blah blah about social justice and revolutionary social change usually when they're young and stoned and at uni <laughs> And then when they're no longer stoned at uni and they've met their person of similar economic standing, you know, they use their parents' money to buy a nice house, to send their kids to nice schools, have a garden, grow vegetables and join Extinction Rebellion when they're not ferrying their kids to and from school in their four-wheel drives. You know, mm-hmm. that just seems to me to be absolutely normal. So I don't see a sort of a trend or a pattern changing. I'm wondering why, where you're seeing these trends and patterns happening. Um, it's less, it's less the, because it's more the, the, the ideals, because as you said there, the, 
the middle class that you're on about is, you know, on about that even if their attempts at class consciousness and environmentalism are inherently hypocritical because they're not, you know, they are just fueling these things. They are still trying them, which and they are still promoting mm-hmm. them as an as an ideal, which is sort of a left wing thing. My point would be that the the there is a sort of rise on a on a where am I seeing it? I can't exactly say. It's it, what, it, it, that's not something I I don't really jot jot that down. So you just have to take it as as conjecture, to be honest. But I think I've a lot of discussions with friends, and these aren't polit- people who are necessarily politically, you know, charged. They're just they're just going about the their mainstream lives, working jobs, nine to fives, and two up, two down, two kids, and and they're coming around to thoughts which are I, I seem. See, is far more conservative, and I think there's a backlash against you know what what people were doing. I mean, I didn't want to go too much down the political route because I just think you know I don't have a direct interest. I have an interest in politics, which is sort of like a Kubrick film. You know, Kubrick treats humans as you know, and I don't want to say that in a sort of um, apathetic way. I'm interested in what people are doing, but I'm more interested in, in individuals. I can't lie to myself and say that I have. Um, empathy for 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 a collective because I just I think that's a complete lie that's not possible at all you can't have empathy for thousands of people that's you know it's hard enough to have empathy for a, for a, uh, an ill dog let alone a, a mass uh-huh. movement I just think that's complete rubbish um, so my interest in in it is more of a oh they're doing that now hmm, I wonder why as opposed to a sort of uh, inherent um, belief in something. Yeah, I guess I'm still sort of, I, I agree. It's, it's just, um, um, yeah, I, I mean, the reason I'm pushing you on this is because mm-hmm. um, I, I'm noticing something about this idea of perceiving trends and, you know, and how you perceive trends. And um, I think the perception of trends currently must have everything to do with social media and the internet because. When I, like I say, I live a life now in Stroud where I don't really see many people. I talk to my neighbors on two houses to two sides. We have occasional conversations. You know, they don't last very long because my my consciousness is a bit probably weird, I think, to, to, to people around me. So, for instance, well, it doesn't matter, but opinions about Johnson and his handling of the coronavirus crisis just... I just don't go there, you know, like I don't want to have a conversation about that with my mm-hmm. neighbor. I mean, I could be wrong, but this kind of conversation you have over a fence um, aren't likely to be at the, the, the depth and level that I would really want to go to. So, you know, um, I sort of talk a little bit about it, but don't go into Yeah, And I could be wrong. My feeling is that that my intellectual universe is pretty intense and shaped by things that most people aren't reading. But I just don't know. And I know my thinking has been shaped by, you know, 30 years of reading critical theory, being involved in activism, trying to be an artist, trying to find ways to make things that might somehow trigger some consciousness shift in some cascade that might somehow, you know, these are the kind of idealisms Mm -hmm. I've had, which I no longer have anymore, but I haven't really moved into a different political position on that. I just, 
all these things and being massively shaped by neo-reaction, which has been the most important intellectual event in my life for the last 10 years and has replaced, in a way, critical theory as a kind of optic on the world, which is transforms it and makes me see it differently, mm-hmm. um, which most people don't even know what you're talking about. No. Like They haven't heard of it. <laughs> they they don't know who Mencius Molbug is. You know, they so where do you start? You know, where do you start with with people that you meet in a pub if you're actually thinking about Mencius Molbug and the clear pill? Yeah, I mean, to, obviously your your perspective is going to be, you know, lar- largely like you say these days from what you're doing online, your social media. Um, you know, and and I have to admit to myself that I'm within certain spheres, but everyone's within certain spheres. What I think I'm saying is that the overarching sphere of people who still read newspapers and people who are in the queues to the shop at the moment and the interviews that I'm seeing on the news, these are the people that I think you have to take as the the centre position of what the media is comfortable interviewing and therefore they sort of, in their own way, represent represent what the collective are thinking about at least. And as far as I can see it, perhaps I'm wrong in this, that if the BBC are interviewing someone, they would do so because they believe that there would be a relative collective agreement with regards to what that person's saying. And what I see is some, what most people consider, returns to uh, relatively subtle right thought, which is being veiled in certain ways. But I don't particularly want to go down the the political route because I just think it doesn't I'm more of a I'm I'm of a position of history is cycles everything is cycles you know this uh, as as above so below this will come around again so I I'm more interested in how it's propelling itself and coming across this time you know I don't think there's particularly much difference in history you know nothing new under the sun and all that um so it's more in what way are people reacting to it? How is it looking this time? What's the aesthetic it's taking this time? That those are the interesting questions for me. Okay, well, I think if I can try and go with that, um, mm-hmm. I mean, but I do also have to say that just to get the picture, and I think I agree with you to some extent that one can assume that the general public out there in the world, which you <laughs> bump into in the queue at the supermarket, or which is pretty much the only place I see anybody now, and to be honest, I don't talk to many people in the queues. I'm a very sociable person. I say hello, but I don't know anyway. For some reason in Stroud, it just isn't happening. <laughs> but the assumption that, and it could be, and I think you're probably correct as a general assumption that they're likely to be reading um, The Guardian or mainstream newspapers and, um, and probably watching the BBC and, and maybe Channel 4, that they're getting their information about the world and the situation that's going on. Um, sort of like delivered to them in a way which has already shaped the message mm-hmm. and shapes what can be said about it. Mm-hmm. You know, so for instance, the conversation that I did have the other day was around that Sunday Times article about, you know, the Johnson's handling of the coronavirus. Again, I don't want to get into the details of the argument. I don't really care. But from the perspective you're talking about is that that framed the conversation. It was already framed yeah, exactly. by the Sunday Times article. Mm-hmm. And that is what people were talking about. And I've noticed this for years. It's, you, you do notice it. People talk about the things socially that they that are, that are, that are high profile in the media. That's the, the, the substance of a lot of day-to-day interaction. 
with strangers is based on mainstream media depictions of what is going on. So uh, I'll agree. I agree with that to some extent, although often when you dig beneath the surface, if you get chance to, and it's hard to these days, you might find that in fact, that person is much more interested in David Icke's theory about the coronavirus as a, and, and round here it's massive, the 5G thing. I've met people that I do talk to in the local community who believe that 5G is a bigger threat to humanity and the well-being of humans than the coronavirus. And in fact, mm-hmm. you know, so you do find those opinions if you actually dig beneath the surface. Because I think people, when they meet, they talk about, because they don't really know each other, they reach for the mainstream media and latest news as a sort of template for which to engage. But you've got to dig beneath that to find out that, in fact, on a deeper level, you know, you should be reading Mencius Moldberg <laughs> or you should watch, you know, David Icke on the coronavirus or something. Again, these are also, <laughs> in their own way, quite generic and so i would say that about the extent to which the others uh consciousness or thinking is shaped by the mainstream media and its agenda which is undoubtedly true Uh, but the extent of it is a little harder to ascertain if we only have superficial exchanges with people um but going back to this if i sense of it you know your sense of the way you described it as like nothing changes but the form changes or something like there's a new form mm-hmm. taking place and 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 um my sense of the changing form if we go back to consumerism I mean, it's just so evident to me and it, and and i and i've seen it coming for a long time is that this is really the sort of really the, a great moment for the silicon valley for amazon for google for microsoft for all the big digital tech companies, uh, this is just, you know, it's a win-win for them, the lockdown. Uh, you know, the fact, very fact, we were already doing this and speaking over S- Skype or Zoom and, and you know, you were already doing your podcast, using the internet to communicate and share knowledge and have conversations. That was already going on. There's a lot more people doing that now than mm-hmm. we're doing that. Uh, and there's a lot more people who would be demanding to do that afterwards as well. Yeah, I mean, that's an, another example of the advertising that's immediately come on. And just to say, we have we come back to consumerism and advertising, but, but you know, there's an advertisement for some electricity company called EE, I think, that's being shown. And it's some, I find this really appalling and symptomatic. And it's some American actor, I think he's called Bacon or something. I don't know. He's a heartthrob actor. Mm-hmm. He's obviously being paid, like, I don't know, God knows how much to advertise a, 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 an internet company, telecommunications company. And he does all the all the stuff about, you know, it's all about the NHS, it's all about the workers. You know, it's, it's to me, it's revolting. It's mm-hmm. disgusting. Mm-hmm. But I assume that there are lots of people who go, that's really nice. It's really good that he's standing up for the NHS. And you know what? The fact that that company is now giving us free access to the internet for the because of the NHS, the coronavirus and I find that just morally repulsive, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but that's normal in that that sphere. So exactly. you know that's the kind of thing. The all the all the companies, the, the the digital companies now are using coronavirus, and more important, they're using the NHS and the workers of the NHS to sell you more digital product. And because that is the way it's shifting, it's it's obvious. There's a logic to it. But I think if there's a form shifting, then it's it is this is the final nudge. For all of us into a digital economy and a, a virtual virtual spaces of communication 
Uh, I mean, it's not going to be complete, but that is going to be the big shift. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, yeah, so that's, I think, where I'm foreseeing the changes really happening that, you know, for instance, in education, I work in education, all university education and most school, you know, secondary school and infant school and junior school education is now shifted online. Now, the, there's no turning back from this in the sense of, of course, people will go back to school, they'll go back to university, but a massive chunk of what used to be done in schools will now be done virtually online. It's, it's pushed that it's going to push things massively over in that direction. And the consequences of that we'll see. It certainly will mean that Amazon is, is having a field day. Oh, Channel yeah, yeah. 4 do a special program about Amazon and how you can get deals on Amazon. The thing is so integrated. Yeah. Well, another another symptom, which is just before I mentioned this, actually, one thing that I <laughs> I had to quickly write it down. So I've just written the words NHS clap Stalin because it rem reminds me of um, the, the the historical anecdote of when people were clapping Stalin. If you yeah. you you know, no one wanted to stop because if you were seen as the first to stop, then why why were you first? So no, you know, sometimes people were there for thirty minutes just clapping because everyone was too scared to stop clapping. And sort of the NHS clap is, like you said, and I've, we've had this moment as well, I look outside the window and I go, we're the only ones in, you know. So then, and I imagine, I wonder how many other people have sort of thought, no, we better go out because everyone else is doing that. It's just a, it's a typical kind of conformity thing. But one of the things that, the, you know, you're, you're on about Silicon Valley having a field day, and this is one of my predictions, is that sort of after this, even though companies have had this furlough and things along these lines, you're going to see so many smaller companies. You're going to see almost like a Judge Dredd situation where there's just three or four ginormous companies which are just now beyond household names. They're sort of, you know, they're on the level of like water. It's just a thing there is. And I've heard that Amazon are buying buying up small farms and agriculture. And, you know, their profit their profit dynamic, I think, is, is completely on this. They, they don't turn a profit or something and put the money straight back in. So they're just growing it. Are just sort of a phenomenal rate but one of the things that's come from this silicon valley thing which is interesting with regards to consumerism is the the uh, the ideal which has sort of become an ideology of productivity and i mean i've recently gone full-time with a podcast and f trying to find ways to sort of organize myself because i'm not that organized as a person and i, I was looking through apps and this the, and, and bits of software that might help me out and there's so many now and they're so they're so complicated and i've come to use this one called Notion, which is quite good, but I'm using it in a very basic way. But when I was watching guides for this, there's people who've set up their entire day, including sort of take vitamins, meditate, journal, read a book, and then all their 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 daily tasks, but they haven't just written them in to do. There's also columns for how good it felt, you know, rate it out of five stars, effectiveness of, and how, and then sort of a chart of productivity. And it's just complete assimilation of the soul into the the min max framework of existence you know why would i eat that why would i go outside and sit and eat that cake in front of a lake when i could sort of scoff it down in front of a spreadsheet and it's like you know there's being a complete removal of qualitative life it's entirely quantitative everything has to be able to be assimilated into a metric it has to be accountable in some some manner that's sort of the silicon valley mo 
Oh, absolutely. And I think the thing is, again, without sounding like a died in the wool Marxist, which, you know, um, I never really was anyway, but this is what Adorno and Horkheimer talked about, individuation, the way in which capitalism produces all as free individual agents who are able to consume. We, uh, you know, that gets developed by Baudrillard, where, you know, consumer products are object signs, which we consume for status. All this mapping of the socius, according to atomized individuals within, with freedom of choice, uh, who are uh, the, uh, the authentic owners of their talents and skills for which they are nothing to society because they, you know, they're naturally expressive of their own greatness and genius. This kind of picture model of the world which you're talking about in terms of these apps and the generators of these apps is the nightmare model of a cybernetically controlled, hyper-individuated society that the Frankfurt School was saying is coming. They were more concerned with authoritarianism, to be fair, because they were coming out of the rise of National Socialism and obviously the Holocaust um, and the way in which technology, technology was being used for warfare and, and the media for, for ideological domination. Um, but this hyper-individuated society in which we're all micro-entrepreneurs it's also been analyzed by Boltansky and the other author in The New Spirit of Capitalism as a kind of management model. This has been quite clearly mapped and analyzed by the left as the dynamics of late consumer, late capitalist society in a digital age. And it is what's happening. I mean, that's this, you know, we are being atomized into these um, entrepreneurial cells that use software effectively. We monitor ourselves. We have wristwatches, which, you know, all those sorts of things. This is the nightmare Big Brother version of the perfect, the fully free society uh, of, of micro-entrepreneurs, hyper-individuated entrepreneurs. And this is a vision that has come from Silicon Valley. You know, famously, there was a, the essay back in the 90s called The Californian Ideology, which showed how libertarians and anarchists and, well, the hippie libertarians had been captured by by capitalist machinery and that this was inevitably going to go in a certain direction. It's, it was an interesting article. We were all reading it going, oh, yeah, this is how um, the internet is going to consolidate the control of capitalism. And mm -hmm. it is doing. And it, But, again, there's some truth to that. There's also questions of freedom and choice and how far we can go and all sorts of other things around it. But I think what you're experiencing is precisely that. Like you, you are becoming an entrepreneur in a digital sphere. Mm -hmm. Well, every, everything that's, everything is seen as a small startup. Nothing's a hobby. Nothing is a pastime. Everything immediately. And I mean, a lot of people my age find it difficult to perform a hobby without immediately thinking, well, in what way can I profit from this? From in what way can I commodify this to make money? You know, or yeah. in what way can I advertise this? And this language of advertising, marketing, what's strange to me, and you said earlier is what's what's interesting is a hundred years ago, the general notion of let's say uh, human behavior or like behavioral economics or marketing in general these were so abstract people wouldn't know about them generally i don't think you know it wasn't so meta and sort of torn apart where you know you see an advert people would i mean obviously once again this is just conjecture but it seems to me that people would 
see an, in the in the in the past people would see an advert and they would just see an advert whereas now they see an advert but they also see that they are being advertised too and there's it's become very self-aware and I, I just think that's extremely dangerous and it's a complete removal and I, I just hate sort of post-ironic advertising that's self-aware I just think it's the most abhorrent demonic sadist just it's awful it's some of the worst you know, if you if you want to market something, market something. You know, a lot of the titles of marketing books are sort of, believe me, I'm a liar. And it's so, it doesn't even matter anymore to them. You know, it's it's just power, really, isn't it? But, you know, and I, you know, I know you don't want to go too much into the philosophy, but last time we spoke, you, you sort of got fairly angry at the idea that everything can be subsumed into capital in the, in the Deleuze and Guattari notion, you know, production, consumption, everything is... Within within that loop of production and consumption, everything mm. can be subsumed into that, mm. and man as an atomized um, design production machine. Yeah, design and production machine. It's just it's just part of that, and it seems to me that you know what we're talking about the the the, the hyper individualist Silicon Valley um, atmosphere and world that is sort of Deleuze and Guattari just subsumed. Well, it, you know, it, it, it is. It is, isn't it? Yeah, I've been thinking a lot about this since since our last conversation and with other conversations I'm having with various people. And it's interesting. I'll just say a few things about that because it, it's it's very complex theoretically and philosophically. And, and that's great because we enjoy doing that and we can enjoy doing that. And we just have to enjoy this thing. The practical value of Deleuze and Guattari's philosophy is for making a difference is, I guess, what I'd question now. And I, I used to think it was really the manual for, for radical social transformation. We'll get back to that. But I do think there's something important about, about, about this, which is, okay, a lot of my thinking about the problem with Deleuze and Guattari came from reading Baudrillard. There's a famous essay, short essay that Semiotext put out in the 80s called Forget Foucault. Mm-hmm. It was in two halves called Forget Foucault and Forget Baudrillard. And there's an important... Um, quote in Forget Foucault. Remember, Foucault was a great advocate of uh, Deleuze and Guattari. He wrote the introduction, I don't know, for, for Anti-Oedipus, mm-hmm. I think. And, yeah. and it was seen in the same sort of French post-structuralist radical milieu. Was that, beware the molecular. Um, and uh, that this move towards molecular revolution, as Guattari called it, was very, very dangerous. And, and Baudrillard was writing this in the 1970s. Because he saw that there was going to be a correlation, or he, he predicts a correlation through code, through um, computer code and genetic code. He said, we're entering the era of the code. Mm-hmm. And I really think this was prophetic for me, and I could see that coming with the way in which um, thinking around biopower and genetics was uh, integrated through cybernetics with thinking about artificial intelligence and a life and this kind of whole milieu from the 1950s, you know, the Macy conferences, there's a whole, there was a shift, a cybernetic shift in which we started to think about the digital and the molecular and as, as if they were somehow the raw material of all reality. Mm-hmm. Um, and we can come back to that, but I would say that I think that one of the important things about Silicon Valley and I've, you know, Good friend, well, a colleague with Eric Davis, who you may know, may or may, may not know, Eric. Yeah, yeah. I've, I've interviewed Eric. Okay, yeah. And, you know, he just said, LSD, West Coast. 
computers, psychedelics. The idea that everything is integrated, connected on some molecular level is a very psychedelic vision. And if you've ever taken psychedelics, I don't know if you have, but you know, you'll be, you would have experienced this, the kind of disintegration of, this, of the material, the physical, into a kind of fizzing, whirling, you know, hard to describe sense of cosmic um, flux, but with order and integratedness, et cetera, et cetera. It's a particular experience of the world as all connected. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a the, the psychedelic dimension of the emergence of the internet and a lot of the thinking about the internet coming from the hippie counterculture um, of the 1960s is, is given it a certain shape and created a certain discourse around it that Baudrillard was warning against. I'm jumping a bit here, but you know, this is what I'm, I'm feeling. That this vision of a um, utterly interconnected complex of desiring production machines at, at the micro molecular and, and macro levels is a kind of psychedelic vision, which I think is still in some way shaping the dynamics of cyber capitalism, but you know, very question, questioning of. But to go back to why Deleuze and Guattari, this didn't, this wasn't, this isn't like just what Deleuze and Guattari are saying. And this has to do with groups rather than individuals. You know, Deleuze and Guattari were very interested in collective multiplicities, assemblages, they were not identitarian. There was an anti-identitarian mm -hmm. politics and philosophy in Deleuze and Guattari. There were temporary collectives. There were fragmentary collectives. You formed alliances across identity lines. I was talking to my partner about this, about you know protests and raves uh, in the 1980s uh, and 90s. And there was a very strong commitment, partly shaped by the philosophy of Deleuze and Guattari, that you should be forming alliances across gender lines, across race lines, across religious lines. You should be forming temporary collectives uh, and suspending your differences in the, in the aim of you know, doing a particular job, performing a particular task. Maybe it's a political task, maybe it's a kind of social task, but the, the non-individuated was hugely important for the politics of the schizoanalysis and schizopolitics. And that's what's kind of missing, I think, in, in the, the current phase of cyber capitalist structuring of society is super individuated the shopping bag algorithm is a great example of it you know you that you know has been put into all our all our but most of our uh, consumer apps now mm -hmm. monitor us and we're monitored as consumers you know con continually through the internet mm -hmm. and our desires and our interests are kind of well if you like this you might like that you know there's a, 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 a data subject being constructed through consumerism through through amazon through through eBay, through you know all of the stuff that's got any kind of commercial commodity dimension to it is mapping us as as potential consumers, mm -hmm. and that's really not what Deleuze and Guattari were talking about when they talked about desiring production. But it can end up looking like that from a certain perspective that it's all. But the, the important thing is the skitzing of the individual, the the decentered individual, the uh, non-identitarian collectives that are temporary formed to do particular tasks, like going to a rave, going to a party, forming a band, going to a gig, um, doing a performance work um, with a group of artists. All these things, uh, all skipping down the street, you know, these are all things that Deleuze and Guattari would have been very positive about, rather than conforming to the six, you know, um, two metres apart um, 
you know, supermarket queue where all you talk about is the, the, the recent news about Boris Johnson. Mm-hmm. Well, that, that seems to be a general trend that the they they're called the postmodernists, and it just won't. It didn't. It's never made sense to me. But basically, the, that entire French milieu, Foucault, Deleuze and Guattari, Lyotard, Derrida, they just get lumped together as the the group that somehow founded the identity movement. And as far as I can see, I mean, I'm in agree, agreement with you that there is very, very little, if anything, in there which promotes that. And um, even in Derrida, there's nothing in there. And it's it's sort of a bastardization of that entire movement towards promoting yeah. individual aims. And I don't think you'll find many philosophers who, outside of sort of Anne Rand, who would promote that sort of um, hardline identity politics of saying, here you go, here's some labels, keep creating labels, fragment labels off more and more to the point where you're, you know, you're constrained. I just, I can see, I can, but I can see how you can get to that from them. Um, I can see how you can sort of alter that. Um, Yeah, but it's, you know, and and the other thing that obviously Deleuze and Qatari sort of prophetic about is the, you know, the little fascist inside us all that are sort of, like you said with the Corona thing, sort of how quickly everyone bowed down to Johnson after years and years and years of mass media, you know, every other um, headline, you know, slating him, you know, when he was the dumb buffoon. And in, within the within a week, we flipped and we were practically begging him for, you know, lock us up, lock us all up and tell us what to do. You know, and that was the little fascist coming out straight away and saying, we don't know what to do, we don't know what to do, you know, tell us what to do. And everyone suddenly loved him. And the same thing happened with Corbyn as well. There was a sort of a sudden flip at a certain point. And you, I think anyone paying acute attention sort of went, well, hang on, last week you were saying this, but people's memories are sort of a day long, you know. With, you know, within a year, we'll, once Corona's over, within a year, we'll have forgotten about it. That's We move at that pace now. Um, I think Corona's probably a strange event because we have to remember it. We're reminded of it every day, which is sort of a, which is peculiar for us because, you know, in the last year or so, there's probably been 10 major school shootings that all had a day of news. I probably couldn't name one of them, which is a. a... That's the nature of the news, though. I think I agree. I think, you know, I've said this to colleagues that in 18 months time, we'll be going doing what we did and it will be a distant memory. Maybe not that distant, but within two years, three years, like everything else, like 9-11. Like, you know, the, the like Occupy, I love that. You know, I was involved with Occupy, really thought it was going to tra- transform the world. This was it. Like, this was going to, ne- the world would never be the same again. Mm-hmm. But I think that's more in the nature of like very human nature in, in, a, in, a, cert- in a certain sense, in a sort of cliche, generalized sense. We just forget. As Nietzsche said, it's good that we forget. Mm-hmm. You know, we need to forget. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, but there's there's a couple of things that I wanted to, to pick up on, but I think I might have lost the thread a bit. What did you just say? Um, Talking about memory and forgetting. Where well, for Boris Johnson suddenly, you know, the little fascist. Oh, the fascist the little in the fascist. head. Yeah, yeah, the, and the question of authority uh, and authoritarianism in a, when there's a crisis and how quickly, you know, in a in a in a state of fear the sense that collectively people reach for authority figures. This is something that has been, you know, very, very evident. And again, this is something that 
both Deleuze and Guattari with their, you know, concepts of microfascism and the fascist in the head. And of course, before that, you know, Horkheimer and Adorno and the authoritarian personality, the fact that, you know, that we have a deeper, a deep need, especially in terms of crisis, to, to, to um, have someone resolve it for us. I saw this at the university I was working when the coronavirus started to kind of really have, have some have effects, was that there was suddenly a sort of crisis, a need for you know the the uh, vice chancellor to tell people clearly what to do mm-hmm. amongst my colleagues like um not amongst all of them and again uh, you, you see what you see you see what you see according to your own optics and perspectives right so i noticed that there's pro- there was other people i didn't notice who were probably getting on with things mm-hmm. and making the decision for themselves well i don't care what the vice chancellor stays because I'm going to make a decision based on my knowledge mm-hmm. and my, you know, I'm going to. Make, but people got caught between making decisions for themselves and being authorized to make decisions by the figurehead, mm-hmm. by the, the top authority, the person at the top of the hierarchy, the, 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 yeah, the authority hierarchy. And it was interesting to see because, you know, it's like I sort of in that role, sort of, I was quite happy to be complicit with what. The authority structure said because i was also looking at what the government was saying and i was not in a position to question the medical advice that the government was giving i'm not a medical expert i'm not a pandemicist you know whatever it's like mm-hmm. it's the best you can do i reached for what i assumed to be in you know in the circumstances the best advice i just said take the best advice you can but it was interesting to see people angry about their feeling that they weren't getting clear directives from authority, when under other circumstances, they, they might spend a lot of time complaining about how bad that authority is, how this is a kind of what you're saying about Johnson, you know, this, this weird ambivalence about do we want authority figures to tell us what to do? Would we prefer just to be told how to act? Uh, or, you know, do we kind of, you know, what is what is our relationship to these people who we hate when they tell us what to do? Uh, when we don't like it and then we want them to tell us what to do when we're in a state of panic mm-hmm. it's a deep ambivalence that 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 has psychoanalysis has spent a lot of time you know working through these kinds of ambivalences towards authority figures and and the law yeah um one thing i just want to touch on is sort of your relationship to uh, conventional media these days because in one of your recent interviews with Jason Horsley you sort of get fairly angry about um, modern films and contemporary films sort of brutalizing you and it's sort of a, this this display which we've ignored of inane violence it seems that yeah, yeah I don't know I don't know if you could expand on that a little bit because it, it really interested me to see that opinion that it's even even the more sort of almost slapstick ones like superhero films are in themselves this inherent barrage of noise. Yeah. yeah. Well, I say I don't watch those films very often, and, and I'm you know have a, have a you know a deep aversion to certain um, over conventionalized codes, particularly around violence. And again, it, it would be hard for me to unpack that too much, except to say that as as you've probably heard in other discussions with Jason that I spent a lot of time looking at violent films and horror films and, and thinking about them. And, 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 and eventually I came to conclude that they were part of the violence they were depicting. 
like they're a continuation of the very violence that they're representing. Mm -hmm. So if you see a rape scene or people, lots of people getting their heads blown off, that is part of the dynamics of power whereby lots where people get their heads blown off. Mm -hmm. Like I see it as part of a continuum. I, I, I don't see it as, as, as kind of this idea that there's a fictional representation in the realm of the spectacle. And it's very, very different from what happens in the, the actual world. Um, you know, and yeah, so that's kind of the background to that. And we we'll take more explain why I think that's going on. But I think it's, there is a real, I do have a very strong sense, which goes back a long time, that there is a dominant class of global billionaires, financiers. I mean, I, I border on the David Icke lizard theory. I don't really believe that, but I think as a myth, it's almost as good as anything to describe what is going on. And if you see a film like Planet of the Humans and you work out how on earth did these, was it possible for Elon Musk and Richard Branson and um, Al Gore to create such a massive con whereby they've been able to convince people that green energy is better for the planet and get people to buy electric cars when actually it's increasing and intensifying the destruction of the planet and especially the organic you know, trees. Um, and everyone's fallen for it and they're, they're raking it in. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, my anger, the brute, the violence of that, that's just structural violence implicated in that and the lies is... Again, I'm not making, I can't make a direct correlation. And like most of these things, when one gets angry and one expresses rage against these things, I think we have to be aware that we're also touching on symptoms in ourselves. Uh, hence going back to the mad, mad Albert guy who sw used to swear and shout at the cars in York. I feel a pathology in my rage. Uh, and I, but I think I have to sort of accept that. I think I've mentioned my colleague, Scott Vaughan, who is very good on this, that uh, who's a psychoanalyst and has this thing called Analytica, is a kind of, anyway, uh, psychoanalyst. And that, you know, you have to kind of accept that um, the things you're interested in, the things that make you angry, the things that really get your goat, the things that, you know, just make you see red are also part of your symptom. They are your symptom, in fact. And you've got to sort of, got to own that too that um these kinds of uh, the rage speaks to something inside us that we are deeply deeply upset about and something about the violence of, of standard american films you know mainstream american films with just just so much violence and the reality of the violence that is i believe being generated in the interests of global a global capitalist class is real to me and yeah. I can't separate the wars. And that's what I was re reminded of. And just to bring it full circle, it may seem like a very delirious way. When you were talking about this question of freedom and Stalin uh, and the clapping, the clapping for the NHS, I was also re reminded of um, Saddam Hussein, who did a similar thing. There's a famous video of Saddam yeah. Hussein you know, where the people who stopped clapping first, I can't remember if it's the same thing, but basically he was giving a speech, no, it's different. And during the speech, this uh, security force would come in and remove different people from the gathering, yeah. parliament, and you'd hear them being shot outside. Yeah. And by the end of the speech, everybody's clapping and standing up 
because they yeah. don't want to be the person dragged outside and shot. Now, it's interesting because that's like, well, it's interesting how power operates, isn't it? You know, that's, mm -hmm. and I think that is how a lot of power operates in a lot of situations. And um, that, that was also used, interestingly, to justify the war in Iraq. And this question of solidarity, collectivism, individualism, one of the sort of turning points for me in a way in terms of the protest movement was the protest against the war in Iraq, where I can't remember how many million people. It was one of the biggest protests, mm -hmm. anti-war protests that the world has ever seen. And when we were in Hyde Park, I remember hearing a message from Tony Blair, which I thought was genius in a way, um, kind of, you know, one of those moments where... He, he spoke, he said, I really want to say it's great that all these people are out there protesting, you know, the, 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 the coming war in Iraq. He said, but I just want to let them know that that's because they've got democracy and that in Iraq, they wouldn't be allowed to gather in this way. And it's great that we have a liberal democracy, a democratic society where you're free to express your opinions in this way. So he was congratulating the demonstrators. And I remember thinking, oh, that's outrageous. That's kind of disgusting. That's kind of, you know, it's a head fuck. Like, but he was right, of course, in, in some way. Yeah. Uh, and so the paradoxes of this question of freedom, groupthink, you know, what we're allowed to do and not allowed to do, you know, is very complicated for me and, of course, for everybody else. But that, those sorts of things, um, you know, brought, brought it home. That, yeah, we can protest, and and but in, but in a, in a Iraq, you wouldn't have the, those kinds of freedoms. And whether or not that's justification for going into Iraq is a different question. But that's yeah. how it was used. Mm -hmm. Is there anything you think we've glossed over in terms of the our conversation so far? Anything you'd like to add that's coming to mind? Well, I think one of the things we haven't touched upon, which I think is really important, and again, it's something that I constantly thinking about is is the question of, of art and particularly avant-garde art and one of the other reasons why i'm you know i have an inbuilt aversion to certain mainstream generic um, forms of uh, spectacle has to do with my involvement in the arts mm -hmm. and and my kind of sort of romantic belief that there are critical art practices or that art is non-conformist, it challenges convention. And I still sort of believe in that idea that, so skipping to the shop or your choice to wear a banana on your nose, I don't know what it would be, but mm -hmm. you know, just doing something which is deemed to be crazy is actually a very good thing to do in societies. It's healthy for people to not conform, to do different things, to express themselves in different ways and to be free to express themselves in different ways. And I kind of an idealism of a society uh, where, you know, freedom of expression is is full. Like you can do what you want as long as you're not harming anybody else or, you know, just. Uh, so I think that my perspective has been shaped by trying to work out how art fits in to these questions. And I think you were, you, stud you studied art. Right? Yeah, I did. I studied art uh, as my bachelor's and I ended up, my third year was largely, my final year was largely anti-art and Dada because I realised that um, a lot of artists, uh, sort of like Jason Horsley's comment about Paul Thomas Anderson, the director, I found that a lot of artists weren't making art anymore. They were trying to make art or they were trying to make 
a good piece of art. And it was clear to me going to galleries that they hadn't made anything of their own creation. They were sort of trying really hard to make, you know, some great piece of art or make it really definite in a certain style or a definite message. And I just thought, this is a bit, this is also subjective. I just couldn't get a grasp of it anymore. And then I got into institutional critique as well and realised that they were tying themselves up in knots and they, they'd been, they th- through their their work, they had been taken into the institution that they wanted to critique. And there was sort of, that's why I ended up in anti-art and data because there was no, way out and my my final degree show was like um two erased mona lisas and the artist's beret like pinned up and left because i just couldn't i just couldn't do it anymore and then then there was sort of i would made some ad reinhardt type posters that were stacked on sort of 40 cans of spam because i just didn't know what to do anymore you know every (laughs) everything had sort of been you know it was that moment of like well everything's been done so the artist can just hang up his his you know his cliche now it's a bit it's all over and then I, I sort of exited from art because I just didn't really want anything to do with it anymore because there wasn't as far as I could see there wasn't many people actually making art there, there was there was a culture which was projecting an idea of art but there wasn't much sincere art and I think you know that when you see it that's not something I can sort of start articulating what it is it's it is one of those that person you know that that is completely that person's vision that it hasn't been tampered with Gerhard Richter was an artist who I believed uh and um Anselm Kiefer as well a lot of that I think it was you know ironically Gerhard Richter was known as a capitalist realist painter but I remember thinking that was some of the most original artwork I've ever seen and it was clear that his vision because of he painted in a very classical style hadn't been sort of tampered with it wasn't wasn't what was expected of him in a sort of sarchy manner which is my you know least favorite gallery because i just think it's the most abhorrent kitsch nauseating art that's usually displayed there but that was my sort of you know and then i just left and got more into the theory because i wanted to know why why this has happened and 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 the contemporary art world leads you very quickly to the continentals, which is why I ended up there. No, it's good. It's interesting because, you know, it's a very similar path. And I just, there's a lot we could talk about this and I don't want to do say too much about this, but there's two things I'll just mention that I think are worth looking at. When I was thinking about this conversation, I was reminded of this famous conceptual art show called Living in Your Head When Attitudes Become Form by Harold Seaman, which was this, you know, it's a breakthrough show when conceptualism was kind of became mainstream within contemporary art and one of the stories about that is that it was sponsored by philip rothman mm-hmm. uh kind of in behind the scenes and that there was a, a, a actually through a an advertising company mm-hmm. uh, who would later go on to try and deny climate change i can send you the links to that i can't <laughs> reach for them right now but this and this relationship between marketing advertising uh, wall street and contemporary art is something that, again, I've followed you on the path of institutional critique and, and you know, what, you know, how can avant-garde art or contemporary art, isn't it just absolutely implicated in this dreadful machine too, which I think it is. And I think these, these are examples of it. Um, but I was led by looking at that. There's an essay called When Attitudes Become Form, Philip, Ross, Philip Morris Becomes Sponsor. And it, we haven't touched on this question of addiction, which I think is, is, is crucial to the ways in which, you know, capitalism and consumerism are, have been understood from a kind of critical left perspective. 
But um, that led me to, to this interesting event, and it's a coincidence of things that I was happening to listen, be listening to WFMU, which is the only radio station I listened to, um, and they were playing a version of Sister Ray by the Velvet Underground, which I'd never heard. And I suddenly thought, wow, it's really weird that, you know, the Velvet Underground were doing avant-garde, free-form noise music in 1966 that, that, that I discovered when I was 16. And, and then I found an article called, And Then My Mind Split Open, which is a lyric from the Velvet Underground. And, and it's interesting that um, the Velvet Undergrounds were performing with the um, uh, Exploding Plastic Inevitable, a theatrical performance multimedia thing that while Warhol was branding himself, and, you know, and, as Andy Warhol Enterprises, and, and I just, I don't want to go too much, too deeply into this, but I still feel a residual trace of something from the 1960s where on the one hand you get pop art, Warhol, money, business, it's just the same thing. You know, there is no, art isn't, you know, the, the provocation of Warhol is to say, art isn't doing anything avant-garde, subversive, anti-capitalist. In fact, it's absolutely flush. And mm -hmm. the best business is the best art. And while the Velvet Underground and the Exploding Plastic Inevitable were doing multimedia, sonic, cacophonous, experiential, mad, Dada-esque mm -hmm. performances, which were completely different, it seems to me. And the reason I'm bringing that up is I think that the reason Deleuze and Guattari were popular or became, you know, um, read by artists, Anti-Oedipus and A Thousand Plateaus in particular, has to do with something about trying to think about um, other modes of challenging the capital, the dominant capitalist paradigm through collaboration groups, temporary autonomous zones, non-singularity, non-singular uh, modes of practice. And I, I keep coming back to this, that the, the art groups that I still believe in or still think are doing important work, or that I enjoy at least, you know, groups like Plastique Fantastique or AAS, are groups that still sort of hold on to this idea of a collective group immersive bombardment of the senses, like a punk gig, that you have to experience, that, that has to be collective, can't possibly be channeled through a screen, and that isn't about any individual person being associated with the artwork mm -hmm. and that idealism which i still kind of have even though it you know feels a bit dated now it is is something i'm still trying to get my head around it and that Deleuze and Guattari still offer something for a way of thinking about community and collectivity and and group creative practice that falls out of this super individuated cyber capitalist atomization of us all as individuals on, on entrepreneurs well i think that throughout you know when i when i did my interview with uh, christoph fiakovsky about dada this is something that he brought up and i'm sort of in agreement with it so i'm not sure that's directly against the the current capitalist individualist mode because i think that individualist mode is, is part of something which is historically is always there which is just as you said before conformity and what you have throughout history is you know, you, you look at history, there's always someone or some group which doesn't work on paper. Um, so even even ancient Greece, you've got, uh, what's his name? Lived in a barrel. The the cynic, he lived in a barrel and he... Um, Diogenes? Yeah, Diogenes, that's the one. You know, and that's not something that really works on paper. And you've got um, 
Christoph gave the example of uh, Athanasius Kircher, who came up, you know, he was this, uh, I believe, a medieval sort of scholar, Jesuit scholar, who came up with a piano where you tied cat's tails to it. And you've got Dada, um, you've got the Cabaret Voltaire, you've got people more contemporary, like someone like Gigi Allen. You know, you've got people who are almost like the parasite coming in and they're so averse to it all and it has to be an analogue means which you attend to it, which just completely sort of disrupts the the flow. And it's, it is sort of what Sarah would call the parasite. It's this noise coming in. You you can't avoid it if you're near it, but it isn't like anything else. And there's always, there's always throughout history moments like that which sort of just disrupt everything. Um, yeah. Crowley is one and, and a lot of occult stuff is imminently part of it because it can't be anything else ritual can't be anything else however however much the postmodernists such as Robert Anton Wilson etc would like to change it I don't think it can happen in the same manner through um, screens and this is something uh, Duchamp saw with the Dada movement is he made quite a few works which were behind holes drilled in walls so even now we can't really get correct photographs of them because you just it's not something we can do. You have to you either go there or do it. And and you know that's but that has to be force. <laughs> but it's throughout history, I think. Yeah, people do it's funny, we ha- we ended up in a similar place last time we had a conversation. I remember talking about, you know, just turn off the computer, go to the park, <laughs> smoke a joint, right? There is and I think that is going to be harder in post C nineteen for a while. You know, it, it definitely has, well, quite clearly limited social contact and random social contact and group, you know, like, yeah, it's going to, and it, you know, in terms of going back to the kind of more theoretical side of Deleuze and Guattari, you know, it's it's emphasizing filiation rather than alliance. So the kind of groups that have been forced to recohere are families. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's atomized everyone into family structures. So, you know, there's never a more kind of great or worse moment, maybe, to be reading Anti-Oedipus. You know, if you're, a, you know, if you're a 16-year-old stuck at home with, you know, like your conservative parents and, and you, you've been listening to the Velvet Underground and, you know, and uh, finding out, you know, hearing about all these hedonistic ways of losing your ego uh, and you're kind of, you know, stuck in your bedroom, you know, with a, you know, I don't know. It's 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 definitely that what is happening under lockdown is is a, a reconsolidation of the most conservative forms of um, affiliation, group grouping, uh, and that you know I mean I don't know what to say about that apart from that's worth reflecting on what the implications of that are because people aren't going to be able to express their non non family alliances. And their non-identity alliances uh, uh, in the real world for quite some time to come. Okay, I think that's perhaps where we should uh, finish up. So, uh, John Cousins, thanks very much. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's been great again. So, uh, yeah. <laughs>